My name is uh, Larry Short, and if um, I don't know you yet, my wife Darlene and I are young adults uh, workers here at Elam. And I have this distinct privilege this morning of wrapping up our, our sermon series in David, which has been incredible for me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, the young adults studied David several years ago, and uh, I just got so much out of it. And I think the reason is because um, I really identify with David in many ways. He he was a guy who made incredible mistakes, wasn't he? And uh, Brian preached, uh, as he preached a couple weeks ago, we know that even though David made incredible mistakes, he was, and he, he sinned profusely, he was forgiven profoundly. Um, God's forgiveness is unlike our forgiveness in so many ways. Our forgiveness can be very conditional, and God's is unconditional. It's eternal. When God forgives, he separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. And if you don't know anything about math and directions, that's an infinite distance. Um, our sins are separated from us. He buries them in the deepest sea. He forgets about them. And uh, it's like, you know, we might be struggling with something and come to God and say, oh, dang it, God, I've sinned again. And God says, again? What are you talking about? <laughs> He's forgotten about it because of his forgiveness. He thrusts it away as far as the east is from the west. And David is a great example of that um, to us. Some good news this morning. Pastor Martin returns this week from his three-month sabbatical. And I really enjoyed um, the three months uh, with some of the guys here who their teaching has been incredible. And uh, Pastor Brian taking up the mantle of leadership during these three months. We owe him so much thanks for, I know he's really um, he's really worked hard. He's done a great job. And yet I'm really excited to have Martin back. I don't know about you guys. And one, one of my jobs today is to prepare you for him. <laughs> so, so you'll be really grateful when he comes back. So, <laughs> so if I mess up really bad, it's intentional, right? <laughs> David was a uniquely gifted man. And I've, I've been struggling with how do you summarize the life of a guy like that? So much is written about him in, in the Old Testament. He, um, he was bountifully blessed by God. He was considered a, he was a forefather of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus was known as a son of David. That's amazing. Um, and it says a lot about David. It also, when we look at David and the different things that happened in his life, it also means we look for Jesus and the footprints of Jesus in David's life. And we're going to see some of those this morning, I think, in an interesting way. He was known as a friend of God. Man, that's what I want to be. <laughs> I want to be known as a friend of God. And I know you do too. He sets the pace for worship for us um, in the Psalms with transparency and vulner- vulnerability. We see that he's, he's stro- the things he's struggling with, his sin, the effects of his sin. He's the consummate shepherd, the consummate leader. He's the consummate warrior. We talked uh, two weeks ago about, or last week, about, about God as our warrior king. And I enjoyed so much uh, the teaching that Michael brought to us on that because it really dovetails in with what we're going to talk about today. David was very humid, humid, human, where he succeeds spectacularly, he also fails spectacularly, doesn't he? Um, you know, he took multiple wives, uh, many of them not Hebrews, uh, contrary to the instruction of God. Uh, even when he did take a Hebrew wife like Bathsheba, he took her from a guy that he wasn't, and had him killed. And we've, we've, we've um, seen that, and it's just, it's tragic, the mistakes that he made. And yet God forgives him profoundly. And uh, I, I love what, what uh, Nathan told him 
which we're going to look at just a minute in chapter 12 again, um, when he says, I've sinned against God, Nathan tells him, your sin is forgiven. You will not die. But there are consequences. And that's something that I've been struggling with. And that's something I think we all struggle with. So if God forgives our sin, if he, if he separates it as far as the east is from the west, then why on earth are there consequences that we still have to go through in this life? And that's what we're going to look at this morning, uh, some of the consequences that David went through. I think that's, that's almost sort of the big elephant in the room. Um, if God forgives our sin, if he forgets about it, then why does he say, David, these are the consequences that you're going to go through? Um, I think the answer, before we really jump into the scripture, there's, uh, I love C.S. Lewis. I don't know if, you, if you've been blessed like I have with reading C.S. Lewis, but in the Narnia Chronicles, which was supposedly for children, but I keep reading them over and over. Um, maybe that says something about me, I'm not sure. Um, in the first one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you'll remember that um, Edmund is tempted by the white witch who represents Satan to sin. Edmund's one of the characters. And he sins against Aslan. Aslan represents Christ, of course. And he eats, he's tempted, and he, uh, the witch tempts him with Turkish delight, and he eats, and, and he betrays Aslan. And um, later on, the white witch brings this up to, as if she had nothing to do with it, to Aslan and says, you know the deep magic that the emperor created in the beginning. You know he must die. You know that, that, that that's, that's part of the, of the rules of the universe. He has to pay for his sin. And so Aslan, as you, if you've read, seen the movie or read the book, um, admits and says, yes, you're right, that's the deep magic, and that's what the emperor created, and that's what has to happen. But here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go in his place to the stone table and lay down my life. And so he does that, and so the white witch and her minions shave him, and they, they kill him. And um, as Lucy and Susan look on, just um, with great sadness, they see Aslan die on the, on the, the stone table. And as they're keeping watch there, in the middle of the night, suddenly there's a huge crack, stone table breaks, Aslan comes to life again. And they're obviously overjoyed, and they run to him, and he talks to them about the deep magic. And there's something that he says that I think is very cool and illustrative of what we... of one of the principles here. Why do we um, struggle with sin? Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. And that's a line from the story, whenever I hear it, death itself would start working backward. I think that is so true of what we're experiencing today in terms of what we go through here in our life. Uh, we struggle with all kinds of stuff, and it's the result of sin, ultimately. Um, we were talking last night at family camp about Nancy's cancer and all the pain that she goes through. And that's a result of sin, not specifically Nancy's sin, but just sin in general, original sin. We get sick and die and struggle with all these different things and go through all this pain because of of sin. And yet sin has been conquered, it's been defeated, it's been paid for by the blood of Jesus. It's been, uh, we've been forgiven, and yet we still struggle with the consequences. And we see... um, this, first of all, in what we studied a couple of weeks ago in uh, 
the 12th chapter of 2 Samuel, and we're going to cover a lot of territory this morning. I'm going to warn you, uh, I was assigned six chapters. I'm sure that's a, a joke that's being played on me. I'm not sure. But, so we're going to go through them really fast, and we're going to do a lot of reading. But my desire, matter of fact, we, we, we should pray for this right now. My desire is that God would speak and not me, because I have a tendency to say too much, and the best thing we could do would be read and hear God's word and what he's saying to us. Let's pray real quick. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the example of the life of David. Speak to us today. Be here. Be present. We know you're present, but Father, we want to honor you. And just as Jesus said, I don't say anything but what the Father tells me to say. That's our desire is to hear your words this morning and not our words. And so thank you for what you're going to do in our midst. In Jesus' name. So the first consequence we see on the next slide in, in um, 2 Samuel 12 was given right after uh, Nathan's confrontation, remember, the, the story that he tells about the sheep and everything with, with David and just um, strikes David in the heart with that story. And David says, um, in a moment he'll say, I have sinned. This is what the Lord says, Nathan said to David, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you before your very eyes. I will take your wives and give them to one, as, one who is close to you. He will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. David sinned in secret, thinking, hey, nobody's watching. I'm getting away with this. And the consequence is very similar to David's sin, but it's being done to him in broad daylight with his wives. Uh, Incredible. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because of, by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. And as we go on to read what happened, uh, David's first child was, was the son born to him by Bathsheba. And that son did indeed fall sick and die. And uh, obviously that's an incredibly painful thing that David went through with the death of a child. Um, and possibly David thought, when that happened, at the end of it, he thought, okay, it's done, thank God. I, you know, my sin is out there, and, and this terrible thing has happened, and it's my fault, and I take responsibility, but it's done. Hopefully that's the end of the consequences. Unfortunately, that isn't true. We're going to see how the consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba work themselves out through the next couple of chapters. So we're going to read Second Samuel uh, 13. Verses 1 and 2. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for her to do anything to her. Amnon was um, the first, the royal heir, the first son uh, in line for the throne. And his, his name means um, faithful. And we, as we will see, Amnon was not faithful. <laughs> um, he did, the name didn't always represent the truth um, that we see in Scripture. It's ironic. Um, it says he made himself sick with love. And as we see what's going to happen, it was not love because he wasn't thinking of Tamar's best interest. She was his sister. Um, he had an advisor, so-called, named Jonadab, who came to him and said, What's wrong, man? You look skinny. What, you're wasting away. What's going on? And, and Amnon said, 
I'm in love with I'm in love with my sister with and she was his half sister by another mother and he 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 confessed that to Jonadab and Jonadab said here's what you'll do and he gave him pragmatic advice but not godly advice he he told him here's how you can get her and he set up a scenario in which he said go to your father tell him you're sick ask him to send Tamar to make the special bread that she makes and uh, that you would eat it out of her hand. And so we pick it up in verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she'd prepared, brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. She cried out, No, my brother. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. She tried to reason with him. Amnon was not in the mood to reason. He refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had, quote-unquote, loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. And she responded to him. She said, no, that would be a greater wrong than what you did to, just did to me, sending me away from you now. But he didn't listen to her, Scripture says. And he told his servant, throw this woman out of the house and bolt the door behind her. His servant did that, threw her out of the house, bolted the door behind her. She was wearing um, an ornate robe that the virgin daughters of the king wore. And she tore that robe, she put ashes on her head, and she went home to her house that she shared with her brother Absalom. Absalom said to her, Was that Amnon, your brother? Has he been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. We get a, a lot of opportunity to talk with the young adults about the role of sex in marriage and society, obviously. That's some someplace... Something that we're all interested in, but that's a, a, really a place where they're at. And we're pretty old-fashioned. We say, you know, um, Scripture shows, demonstrates over and over, uh, God has a specific plan for sex. It's designed for one man, one woman in a faithful, monogamous relationship. And it's designed as an expression of love. And you violate that in any way, and something that's one of the most incredibly beautiful things in the universe becomes incredibly ugly. And that's the way it is with sin. That's the way it is with God's plan. You do it God's way. You believe him. You trust him. If you don't, you screw it up. And many, many times young adults will ask us, well, um, you know, I'd like to date somebody, but he's not a believer yet, but I, I think I can lead him to Jesus. <laughs> and we'll say, Scripture says, don't be equally yoked. And they'll say to us, well, you know, we're not talking yoke here, we're just talking dating, okay? <laughs> but the truth is, the reality is, we don't know where our emotions will carry us. And probably many of you here maybe didn't intend to marry the person you married when you first started dating them, but, but that's where you, you ended up. You fell in love and you ended up. We have to listen to God and we have to, to stake our claim on God's word if we really want to um, experience what he, the best that he has for us. Otherwise, there's consequences. So when David, King David heard about this, he was furious. Of course, your son rapes your daughter, you're going to be furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Now it's really interesting, it says David was furious. But what did David do with his fury? 
He did nothing. Nothing. And um, I think, an in, I think there's a, an interesting reason for this that relates back to David's sin with Bathsheba. Um, Satan has a way of co-opting us as parents when we sin, when we make mistakes, so that if our kids follow that same path, we, it's hard for us, it's really hard for us to talk to them about it. David should have said, sat down with, with um, Amnon and said, look man, I went down this path with Bathsheba and here were the consequences, here was, here was what happened. Um, take my life as an example, don't go there and you know, repent, go before the Lord. He should have dealt with this sin with, with uh, Amnon. He didn't touch it. He was mad, he was angry, but he didn't touch it. And I, I relate to this a little bit. I struggled with anger a lot when, I was, uh, when our kids were younger. And that was one of my sins was just, you know, I, I had a hard time keeping a lid on it. My son knew how to push my buttons, still does. Uh, <laughs> very good at that. And, um, and I, uh, more than once, I lost it with him. Once I, th- I, I tell people, I threw a telephone at him. <laughs> I'm not proud of this. And he was fortunately a very good dodger, and he dodged. <laughs> and the telephone made a hole in the wall behind him. <laughs> I could have hurt him. And uh, it was sinful on my, behalf, on my part. And, and God spoke to me at that point and said, you need to deal with this anger issue in your heart. And I think, and thank God, my kids, as far as I know, have never you know, struggled with anger in their families. But um, if they did, I know Satan would be in there saying to me, you hypocrite, you were angry with them, you, have, you, you need to keep your mouth shut, you, know, you have no right to talk to them about anger. I think that's something we struggle with as parents. If, some, if there was something that we struggled with, it's hard to talk to our kids about. It takes a lot of humility to say, yes, I did this, I was wrong. Learn, learn from my example. And it's exactly what David should have done with Amnon. But there are more consequences to be, to be paid. Um, and everything seems, under the surface, to be going along smooth and cool. Uh, and then comes... Absalom, two years later, it says, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. So um, Absalom had a plan, had a scheme, and um, he basically said to Dad, he said, um, we're going to have a big party. Dad, you're invited. Dad said, no, I don't want to be a burden to you. And Absalom said, well, you know, I'd like Amnon to come. And I think Dad was a little suspicious because he says, why do you want Amnon to come? But Scripture says he pressed him, and David relented, and so Amnon and all the king's sons went to this big party. And uh, the next slide shows us the scheme that was afoot. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong. And brave, and that's exactly what his servants did. When Amnon had had a lot of wine and he wasn't on his guard, they seized the moment, they struck him and killed him. Everything in the in the party was thrown into chaos. All the king's sons, it says, fled on their donkeys. And there's some really interesting parallels if you look at it between what happened here with Amnon, just like there was parallels between what happened with um, with Amnon and Tamar. Uh, parallels with David and Bathsheba. There are parallels here between what what Absalom did to Amnon and what David did to Uriah. Uh, 
Both men plotted in order to achieve a specific end, plotted the murder carefully over a period of time. And both were committed by proxy. They sent other people to do their bidding so their hands would be quote-unquote clean, right? Also something that's interesting is alcohol consumption played a role in both of these events. Now, I I like a glass of wine, but... I realize you need to be really careful because often in Scripture when someone is trying to get someone to get their eyes off the Lord, to stray, it involves a little bit too much wine. And you let your guard down and there's a danger there. And that happened in both cases. So Absalom fled. He went to Talmai, son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. Now this is interesting because Absalom's family was from Geshur. Absalom means... The name, Absalom, means father of peace. So kind of like Amnon, which means faithful, Absalom wasn't exactly a father of peace, was he? Just like Amnon wasn't faithful. Um, and he didn't do the peaceful thing, but he fled to Geshur. His, his mother, uh, David had married her when he was in exile, um, when Saul was chasing him, and he was functioning as a mercenary. And... Um, she must have been an incredibly beautiful woman because both her kids were, were stunning. Scripture talks about both Absalom and Tamar as being very beautiful. But he fled and went home, essentially, to, to there. And he stayed there for three years. And verse 39 is interesting. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. After three years, King David was, was torn. He was like, love my son, now Absalom is in line for the throne, which gives you an idea. Maybe Absalom's motives weren't purely revenge for his sister, but all of a sudden now he's in line for the throne. There was a, um, earlier in Second Samuel, it talks about a second son who was between um, Amnon and Absalom, and then that's the only time he's ever mentioned. And so it's assumed that second son also died perhaps as a child. So if you're counting with Bathsheba's son, and David's second son, and now Amnon, the first three sons all in line for the throne have died. Talk about consequences. Um, Must have been incredible for David. And now Absalom stands there in line for the throne. And David's heart went out to him. He longed to forgive him, but he was torn. Um, What do I do? He'd been consoled regarding Amnon's death. So, enter Joab. You guys remember Joab, right? Joab, the son of Zariah, was one of the two sons of Zariah who were kind of the leaders of David's army. Joab and I think Abishai was the name of his brother. And Joab is an interesting character because we see he's, he's, a, he's a great warrior, he's, he, he's a good fighter, um, but he also is not real obedient to David. He's kind of a schemer behind the scenes, and, and he ends up many times doing things that just David wants to get rid of this guy. He couldn't get rid of Joab, and you really have to ask why. And I think the reason is because Joab was the guy, remember, when David wanted to do away with Uriah to cover his sin with Bathsheba? Who'd he send? He sent Joab, right? So Joab knew David's deep, dark, dirty secrets. And so Joab was in a position of power in David's life over David. And at one point in time, David says, um, man, these sons of Zeruai, they're too much for me. I wish I, wish I, could, wish I could do something about them. But they remained in positions of leadership all throughout David's life because he was, just like David had been co-opted with his, because of his sin, he'd been co-opted in regard to speaking truth into his son's life. He was also co-opted by these guys who knew his secrets. And that was part of the consequence that he, that he paid. Joab, son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa, 
had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you're in mourning. Dress in mourning clothes. Don't use any cosmetic lotion. So, well, we won't get into that. <laughs> but used to be the way you showed you were in mourning was you didn't put on, on lotion that covered up your, your smell. And so you would just smell bad, basically. So he's saying to this woman, go ahead, smell bad. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. And then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honor. And she said to him, help me, your majesty. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. The king asked her, what is troubling you? (laughs) She said, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field. And no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death. For the life of his brother whom he killed, then we will get rid of the heir as well. They would put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. The king said to the, to the woman, Go home and I will issue an order in your behalf. David was a sucker for a good story, wasn't he? And the story, if you read it, is really tugging David's emotions because he's confronting a very similar situation. His son has killed his other son. And, but he still, he loves his son. He doesn't want to take action. doesn't want to take vengeance on his son. And so she's, she's working that in with this fictitious story that she's made up, that Joab planted within her. She's working that in. But the woman from Tekoa then sprung the trap. She said to him, Let my lord the king pardon me and my family and let the king and his throne be without guilt. The king replied, If anyone says anything to you, bring them to me and they will not bother you again. What's David doing here? He's making a ruling, a judgment based on his emotion, based on how he feels, based on the story. We saw this happen also, in a good way, with Nathan's story. Nathan used a story to really get David's heart into it and to help David to see that he had done the wrong thing. This is the other side of that coin. This woman is using a story to manipulate David through Joab into a position of doing something that's not necessarily right. Then the woman said, Let your servant speak a word to the Lord my king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. She's saying, You hypocrite! (laughs) You just said that you would forgive my son and it was okay and he should be brought back. But your own son is living out in in Geshur and uh, you haven't forgiven him. All of a sudden, David smells a rat. (laughs) Then the king said to the woman, Don't keep from me the answer to what I'm going to ask you. Let my lord the king speak, the woman said. The king asked, Isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? (laughs) Now, why was Joab so interested in... in, uh, Why was he... Why do you think he was such an advocate for Absalom? I think, looking at it, it's because Job's basically feathering his nest. He knows David doesn't isn't comfortable with him. David really would like to get rid of him. And Absalom's the next guy in line. And when Absalom's ready to come to power, he wants to be, he wants to be his advocate. He wants to be there for him. As we'll see a little bit later, Job really didn't like Absalom all that well. And didn't treat him very well. But he's, he's sort of playing both sides here, and he wants to feather his nest. And so he co-ops David in this. And David agrees. He says, okay, uh, Job, you win. And Job says, oh, thank you, my lord, the king. You're honoring me in making this decision. And he sends Job to Geshur, gets Absalom, brings him back. But, but David's uh, forgiveness of Absalom is, is not complete. It's not godly. It's conditional. And Scripture warns specifically fathers, warns us not to embitter our children. 
uh, not to frustrate them. And I think this is one of the ways that we can do it. If we don't love our kids unconditionally, dads, um, my son is not perfect, um, and there's many ways I wish he could change, and same thing with my daughter, but God asked me to love him unconditionally and to accept him, and I don't want my son saying, you know, I'm, I'm not sure of dad's love for me, because we, saw, we see that happening here with Absalom. David um, says he can come back, but he can't see my face. And so Absalom comes back and spends his, he spent his three years in Geshur. He spends another two years. Basically, he's not under house arrest, but he can't see his dad. There's no communication. And interesting story that it tells about how he sends for Joab. Joab now won't, won't respond. Joab doesn't talk to him. Sends for him again. Joab won't talk to him. So he sets... Job's field is next to his. He has a servant sets Job's field on fire. <laughs> and Job comes back and says, why have you set my field on fire? And he says, well, it's because you, you didn't respond to me. <laughs> He's trying to get his attention. It works. <laughs> and so Job goes to the king and, and advocates and says, you need to, you need to talk to your son. Um, here's where things are at. And so David grants an audience. To, and, it's, and scripture says that David threw his arms around his son and kissed him. And David loved him, wanted to reconcile, just wasn't forgiving him unconditionally. Now, something else interesting about Absalom. Um, he was, I mentioned he was a handsome dude. In all of Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Great ad for Clearasil or something, right? Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it. Guess how much it weighed? Anybody know? You'd think your hair doesn't weigh that much. It says, Scripture says 200 shekels. So this is not Absalom. <laughs> I tried to find a picture of somebody with a lot of hair. 200 shekels is four pounds of hair. Now, Mary Price would love this. If I went you know, to Mary's studio and once a year to have my hair cut and it weighed four pounds, and Absalom was pretty proud of this, his hair. He, and it was, it was something that he just, that was his symbol of. His luxuriant hair was great. And I think there's a lesson for us here because, um, lesson for us here, not hair. <laughs> because his hair is what hung him up in the end, <laughs> uh, so to speak. So, in the course of time, in addition to Absalom's uh, vanity, Absalom was plotting. He, in his bitterness, he had a plan. He wasn't willing to wait for dad to kick off so the kingdom would be his. He, he wanted it now. And so here's how he began to do it. And Absalom was pretty smart. He was a practical kind of guy. He, he had lots of resources. It says he provided himself with a chariot and horses, 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early, stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in Israel. Watch out for people that say, if only I were um, governor of the state of Washington. (laughs) Or whatever. I'm not not doing anything political here. Um, Scripture says, well, then everyone who has a complaint... Or, or case would come to me and I would see that they received justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down to him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Baby kisser. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and here's the result. And he stole the hearts of the people 
of Israel. And David didn't know it. David wasn't aware of it until later. And, and there's this, this is something we need to guard against in our midst. Um, the next scripture says in Romans, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions, put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. So Absalom launches out on his plan. He sends secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel. He says, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, say, Absalom is king in Hebron. He took 200 men with him from Israel. He asked his father, he said, I made a vow when I was in Geshur that I would uh, worship the Lord in Hebron if he brought me back. Now I'm going to do it. And dad probably thought, great, my son's getting right with Jesus, you know. Uh, at this point doesn't have a clue. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Now, who was Ahithophel? And this is really interesting to me. Um, if you look at a couple different scriptures in 2 Samuel, you'll see that Ahithophel was the father of Eliam, and Eliam was the father of Bathsheba. So that makes Ahithophel Bathsheba's grandfather. Okay? Well, I know as a new granddad, I am very fiercely protective of my granddaughter. If anybody tried to mess with my granddaughter, they would, they would have me to um, account to. And I think this demonstrates the fact that Ahithophel had a hidden grudge that he bore against David for many years. Um, scripture says that Ahithophel's counsel was like uh, one who inquired of the Lord. It sounded, it was godly. It sounded so good. And we'll see that it was very practical and very pragmatic, and he was very wise. But he, he harbored a hidden burden, uh, a hidden bitterness in his heart against David. And all of a sudden now it comes out. He's recruited by Absalom. He, he turns tail and he goes to Absalom's side of the matter. A messenger came and told David, now the gig's up. The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. Absalom's heading toward Jerusalem with a lot of Israelites that he's got on his side now. All of a sudden, David sees what's going on, and he knows they're in deep, deep trouble. They'd be lucky if they escaped their lives, and he doesn't want the city to fall. He leaves ten concubines in charge of the palace to keep watering the plants and feeding the cats or whatever. And he leaves... He flees. Now, what's really interesting, I've, I've, I've got only five minutes left, so I'm going to just really summarize here, but it's fascinating to me to see what happens. Um, when David, and this is one of the places we really see Jesus in David's life, as, and, and I encourage you to read chapter 16, 17, 18 of Second Samuel, because as David leaves Jerusalem, he takes a journey that Christ later takes the night he was betrayed. It says he crosses over the Kidron Valley, and there's a brook in the Kidron Valley that runs through it. The name Kidron means dark. And they called it dark because it was polluted. It had all the waste of Jerusalem running through this brook. And during Passover, during sacrifice time, that brook ran red with blood. When Jesus walked over it, as he was heading up, as he was leaving uh, the Last Supper and heading up to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he crossed over the Kidron, it would have been running red because it was Passover with all the sacrifice of thousands of lambs. And Jesus would have looked down in that water knowing that, that represented his death and what he was going to go through. David goes with some loyal, trusted people. As he's leaving Jerusalem and fleeing, he flees up the Mount of Olives. Remember, Jesus walked up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says, he, as he went, he went with his head covered. All the people with him had their heads covered. He went barefoot. 
weeping and wailing on the way. Um, and it, it's just reminiscent of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops as of great blood because of the, the trauma that was on him. And I, I'm imagining Jesus thinking of this as he's headed that direction and thinking about what God did for, for David. It must have been an incredible metaphor for him. And when you read the scripture, you'll see there are people that came behind him and really ministered to him. There's other people that threw dirt on him and rocks. And uh, David's men wanted to kill one of the guys that was throwing dirt and rocks on him. And David said, don't touch him. It's from the Lord. If, if the Lord, um, here's my case, he will return me to Jerusalem. If not, it's up to him. So David responds to God in the midst of this tragedy. It's really cool. And just really quickly how the story ends is um, David sends some folks back into Jerusalem who are sort of like spies. He sends the priests back with the ark. He sends a trusted advisor named Hushai. And Hushai is there. He frustrates the good advice of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel, knowing David, says, you should go after him now. You should pursue him. And you should kill David. Get rid of him, and it will all be yours. David's on the run. He's in shock. He's tired. And... Uh, Absalom says, um, says, oh, okay, that sounds like good advice. Well, what does Hushai have to say? And Hushai says, no, the advice Ahithophel just gave you is not good. You need to, you know David's a fierce fighter and his men. You need to assemble a large army and pull them all together and, and pursue him. And what this does is that gives David time to um, gather his forces together and it gives, gives him a path of escape out of the situation. So God used the, the advice of Hushai to frustrate the advice of Ahithophel. Interesting to see what happens to Ahithophel. Remember Ahithophel's bitterness in this? Uh, scripture says, after Ahithophel heard, realized that Absalom was following Hushai's advice, he saddled his donkey, went home to his home, put his affairs in order, and hanged himself. He knew the gig was up because he knew that now he was in trouble. Great battle ensues. And um, Absalom is camped in Gilead with his forces. Um, David is in a town called Mahanaim, which is really interesting because it means two camps. And if, if you're familiar with Jacob, when he, when he fled from um, Laban and he was fleeing toward his brother, he went through a place where he saw the angels of God paralleling his own camp. And he named that place Mahanaim, which means two camps. And so here's David sitting in Mahanaim, and men are coming to him, loyal men, and are refreshing him and his troops and bringing them supplies. And he now has an opportunity, despite his pain and what's going on with Absalom, he now has an opportunity to survive. And his, his, his men convince him. David's getting pretty old. His men convince him to stay in the gates of Mahanaim. And they, they'll go out and fight. They went out and engaged Absalom and his forces in the wilderness. And Scripture says that Absalom just happened upon some of David's men. And the reason was, Absalom was riding a donkey, and you know this story, in the forest. The, the battle was in thickly wooded forests, and he was riding a donkey, and he got caught by that luxurious four pounds of hair. And the donkey says, the scripture says, the donkey kept on going. <laughs> and he hung there. A man came to him, to Joab, and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a tree. And uh, Joab said, why didn't you... Kill him. Why did you strike him down? I would have given you ten shekels and a belt. Woohoo! 
a belt. <laughs> and the guy's pretty smart. He's got more brains than brawn, and he says, if you'd given me 10,000 shekels, I would not have touched him because we, you all heard the king say, be kind to the young man Absalom on my account. Joab takes three spears, it says, goes, thrusts him into the heart of Absalom, and then his men surround him, cut him down, and make sure he's dead, basically. They bury him under a huge pile of rocks, and that's the end of Absalom. Pride cometh before a fall, Scripture says, and he was hung up by his hair, and um, that was the, the end of Absalom. He didn't even have an heir, didn't even have a, someone to continue his name. But God had a different plan, and that plan was Solomon. Um, the first four sons of David went down, um, and just natural consequences of David and, the, and walking away from the Lord and his sin. Incredible consequences, really sad, tragic consequences. This whole thing is incredibly encouraging to me. I don't know about you guys. Looking at David's life is encouraging to me because um, last week Michael was talking about God as a warrior. David was a warrior, and, it was, and, and life was a battle. And uh, Scripture talks, says life for us is going to be a battle. Now, it may not be the same kind of battle as David fought, but it's a spiritual battle. Scripture says we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And David battled against temptation and principalities and powers just like we do. And the encouragement to me is that if God could forgive a guy like David completely and then stick with him as he, as he walked through the consequences of his sin, David finished well in the end. Um, he... If, you, if you, you can read his prayer in 2 Samuel 23, he has got an incredible, and it says these are the last words of David, and he, he praises God for being there for him, even though he was a sinful guy. It says, um, if, if my house were not right with God, uh, he, wouldn't have, he wouldn't have blessed us like this. And when he says that, he doesn't mean I was a good guy, because you see all this stuff that David walked through. But David was a guy, when he sinned, he got down on his face before God, and he acknowledged I blew it. If he can do that, I can do that. <laughs> I've sinned a lot. And um, what God asked me to do is to get down on my face and, and acknowledge it before him. And so we're going we're gonna to pray, and then we're going to do a, a song. And as we, as we sing this song, I would encourage you, if you have unforgiven sin in your heart, uh, and you just think, many of us think, you know, God would never accept me. Um, I would ask you, is, what, is your sin any different than David's sin? Probably not. It's probably not as bad as David's sin. Um, if God can forgive David and can call him a friend, God can forgive you and he can forgive me and call us a friend. Let's pray. Father God, the way that uh, this story speaks to me, I see the amazing depths of the incredible love that you have for us. It's a love that you just you hunger to forgive us. You, you desire for us to be holy, to be cleansed, to place ourselves at the mercy of Christ and to be covered by his shed blood so that we can have that eternal relationship with you as our Savior. Thank you that you forgive us And thank you that even though there are consequences in this life of of the sin that we engage in, 
that if we look to you, Lord, you will bring us through them. David had a lot of pain. He learned a lot, but he also finished well. Lord, that would be my prayer for each of us here, that we finish well. And we thank you in Jesus' name for speaking to our hearts on all these things. Amen. As we see here, sin will always cost you more than you're willing to give. We still have to deal with sin. And that means we, we keep current with God. That means that we live repentant lives. And even then, there's still consequences. But recognize the consequences aren't because God loves us less. They're the direct results of the decisions that we made. And we have a God who understands. We have a high priest who understands. Christ was tempted in every way that we were tempted and did not sin. We also have an advocate. Christ goes before the Father on our behalf that when we do sin, God sees Christ's blood covering our sin. We are forgiven when we put our faith and trust in Christ. And we need to live within that forgiveness. And in this whole struggle with sin, why do I keep doing the very thing I hate? Because we like to feed sin in ourselves. We don't like to give God control of every part of our life. So like Larry said, what sin is there that's entangling you? What sin is overcoming you? And have you given it to God? Have you laid it at his feet? And are you living within the forgiveness that he's given you? Because again, we don't have to stay in the depths of mourning over our sin. Colossians 3 says we need to focus on the things above where Christ is seated and where our life is. Are we focused on that? So we need to live repentant. We need to mourn over our sin. We need to stay current with God. But we don't need to stay there. We need to think about what Christ has done for us because Jesus has paid it all. He has forgiven us of our sins. He has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. And His death has paid my way. Are we living in that? Are we focusing on that? Still dealing with sin, but we need to focus on what Jesus has done. Father, we need you. This life on this earth is tough. Our sin nature, you've overcome it. And Father, we need to live in that, but we struggle so bad. And Father, when we do fall, I pray that we would uh, live repentant lives remembering what your son has done for us. We are already forgiven. Our sins are already washed away. But when we sin, it affects our relationship with you. And Father, I pray that we would seek an intimate relationship with you. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. We love you, Lord. Amen.